0: Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of the Kitabi Karwan podcast. Before we get started, I just want to give you a small brief about what this podcast is going to be about. It's not going to be a typical podcast reviewing books or giving you ideas which are essentially blurbs of books. What I'm going to do is try and talk to authors about what makes them read, what makes them write, what is it about this entire beautiful world of reading, that draws the best out of them creatively what this podcast wants to do is explore the depth of reading and what makes people read or what connects to them while they read different things and that's why i'm going to be interviewing different authors talking to them about their favorite books what got them into writing what do they think about certain aspects of reading which you might find interesting and That's about it. The very first guest for our podcast is Ms. Ria Mukherjee. She's the author of The Body Myth, which was published by Unnamed Press last year. And she's also written a collection of short stories titled Transit for Beginners, which was published by Kitab in 2016. She has an MFA from the California College of Arts in San Francisco. And she's also dabbled in a variety of things, ranging from being a coffee barista, a counsellor, a behavioural health advocate, and an entrepreneur. She also is a vegan and runs an amazing blog for veganism. And at the same time, her website carries all her non-fiction and fiction articles, which I strongly advise all of you to check out. It is something really interesting. Without any further ado, let's jump right in. So, um, Ria, for uh, all our listeners and viewers, uh, I would like you to give us a small introduction and not the one on your website or on your blog. Something that tells us more about you.
1: You know, I am so I'm a, I don't know, I'm a Bangalore based writer, for all practical purposes. Um, But I am um, this little third culture kid who kind of grew up between the US and India for the longest time. Um, You know, my first 10 years were in the US. And then the next, you know, and then you know, when I was uh, 10 to 18, I was in Bangalore. So I was a school kid in Bangalore in the 90s. Um, and then my family moved back to the US. And that's another story altogether, my, God, my family. But, um, uh, you know, so I, I went to college and did my master's um, over there, um, worked for a bit. And uh, I moved back to India actually in two thousand eleven. So I'm very much a, a Bangalorean. Uh, I uh, run a small content and design firm which pays the bell- bills because fiction does not pay the bills. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and I live with my partner and I have two dogs called Nimbu and Henna. Both adopted oh, little dogs.
0: That's yeah. so cute. So um, something I really have to ask. Okay, this is one of those reverse jumpa Lahiri kind of situations. She's one of my oh, favorite yeah. authors, and it's yeah. It's just very unique to see her writing because she's that third culture kid, but you know, set in the US. And it's very refreshing because now that in the 80s and 90s, you had this explosion of people studying abroad, coming back, and I know assimilating different cultures that they've learned. So, how does your culture, your this change in your cultural approach, fit into what you read and what you write? I mean, because you've been you've at very different stages in your life, you've been exposed to very different cultures and that just offers a unique perspective, which I would want to know.
1: I think that's a really good question and it's funny that you mentioned Jhumpa Larry because she was, of course, a defining author that I went to when um, in my 20s when I was reading. And like you said, there was this whole blast of, I think maybe from the mid-90s onwards, um, this whole blast of uh, Indian diasporic, writing um that kind of addressed uh this whole fitting in and um you know becoming uh you know embracing your indian identity in an american world however that was not my experience because of my shifting in between countries so i wasn't the typical abcd what they call american-born confused desi who you know could relate to a lot of the issues um that your standard American Indian person could relate to. Um, and so I thought that there were there was something missing in the, in the writing that I was reading that was coming from Indian writers. And this was a time before Indian English writing really took a huge stand in India, which now it's much more well-known. Uh, writers are taking right. all types of uh, challenges and really embracing their own environment versus before it was either very exoticized writing. It was like, you have to talk about arranged marriages and mangoes and pickles, or you have to be talking about the immigrant experience only. Um, And so now you can see this whole host of, indian uh, english writing and obviously all of these wonderful themes and um, literary talent was always there in our native languages we just mm-hmm. you know and now we can read a little bit of that in translation um, you know because i can't you know english is really the only proper language that i can read in i mean i can technically read in hindi but I can't enjoy a book like the way, and and that's a loss for me. That's, you know, a loss of language, but there is so much great literature out there. But in Indian English writing, now I think it's a very exciting time. And so I feel like right now you can, as an Indian writer, you can write about anything and take new risks and um, really understand that in India, there is no one story. It's a billion stories. And, you know, you can try to take one kind of perspective and, and put it out there.
0: So um, something that you mentioned, right? Like talking about how in India, you're absolutely right. There are these almost one hundred and thirty-five crore people here. Everyone has unique stories, and because of how our country is structured, we just have these unique cultural tastes. And uh, it just pivots me back to a, uh, a short story I read on your website about. Uh, so it's something uh, I don't remember the name of the short story. I apologize, yeah. but the character talks about how the uh, there's a protagonist and the female lead who talks about how there's this buzzwords which is talked about which is kind of dismissed as clicky or like something that's kind of looked down upon and that's something that I felt is something we should talk about that or uh, we do I think personally we are seeing this divide in Indian let's say called it the Indian reading scene wherein you'll have your typical elite upper class people or like anyone who's been privileged enough to get a good education, to be exposed to Western yeah. literature or something like me mentioning Jhumpa Lehri that just drips off the fact of the kind of privilege I've had. And on mm-hmm. the other hand, you have the explosion of writers whose work is not typically called literature in that sense, something yeah. like your, uh, I wouldn't name them, but then you do get what I mean. And, <laughs> uh, right, And there are, and you see this great divide wherein they have stories to tell. These are authentic stories because they click with people. They click for reasons mm-hmm. that their language is simple. They're, they click because well, their stories are well true. And but on the other hand, you have people judging them for like not adhering to this idea of what literature is—that you know something. I think I think one of my favorite comparisons is from—I'll uh, actually name the book over here. It's just uh, I was reading Two States. It's one of a, a fun book that I really like, and uh, where Chetan Bhagat just mentions that you know he's at his girlfriend's house and he's uh, his mother's cooking and she's a Tamilian, and she's like if this was any other uh, well-written book I would spend two pages talking about how the smell of spices was you know exotic and something, but it just was burning my eyes. Something that, I think that perfectly encapsulate what this divide is. Do you think that I know there is um, any merit to this kind of divide being put out there that somehow modern Indian writers are not catering to a higher level of writing or is it just that well they have different stories to tell
1: no I think um that the divide is quite unnecessary because it is certainly a part of literature and the more mainstream it is the more accessible it is and I think we have uh that's a crisis if you ask me But people are going to just alienate mainstream and pulp literature. Like you said, things that are resonating have this kind of, um, you know, A to B Bollywood kind of format. Um, because these are very true, uh, uh, true emotional kind of understandings that people experience in the country. Um, and you have to remember that most of India is, you know, not sitting in Bombay and Bangalore and Delhi, it's it's in the smaller towns. and. Um, their reality and how they negotiate all this liberal globalization that's happening is very different uh can be very different from the way that you know we want to examine like you said there's is a, this is an element of privilege so it's great that there is literary fiction but there ha- but i have a great respect a great respect for what is the mainstream like i personally am a huge fan of bollywood and not just because you know i i'm, I'm a, like you know uh, yes i mean i can quote a lot of films and i can you know gush about a lot of films but Basically, they connect the country. So no matter what, if you think, oh, God, I hate Bollywood and I hate this nonsense and Tamasha that goes on. It's still it's a it's a conversation point that we all can reunite for a moment with the memory of something. Most okay. most urban Indians, most uh, small town India will know what DDLJ is.
0: That's correct.
1: Okay. No matter whether you hate it or not, or you didn't care for it or whatever it is, it is, it's a connector.
0: So something that also bothers me is, or not bothers me, just something I think about often is, as you mentioned that, even I come from like a North Indian family, but I know how to speak in Hindi, but I'm not very comfortable reading it. And me mere text, I would end up reading it, but I won't enjoy it the same way I enjoy a book written in English. And uh, do you think this is affecting the narrative in the sense that people aren't able to get their stories out there? Or is language forming an actual barrier at this stage in India's growth as like a society not as a country
1: you know it is and I think it's very interesting because I feel like there's a there's a certain population in the in the country that's actually comfortable reading English definitely mm-hmm. not speaking it right yeah. definitely not speaking it um they would feel way more comfortable in their natural in their mother tongue whatever that might yeah. be Um, but because of, you know, globalization and this pressure that you have to understand English or, you know, you, 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 you get this basic English, but you don't have the confidence because you don't have the ecosystems to speak it every day or to understand it from different perspectives and, you know, global pinpoints and whatever. So you can't speak it, but you can read it and you can resonate with that, which is why a lot of English, uh, fiction, you know, of the Chetan Bhagat and, um, um, that like the, there's a bunch of writers who are writing in that league um, resonates so much with right. that. Um, but also you say like, you know, we're reading, like we might not be comfortable reading uh, a literary fiction in Hindi, but right. I, and I also feel like we're losing out so much in how thoughts are formed because every language and culture has their own way of perceiving, perceiving, you know, English is a very limited language and it's, yet it's the global aspiration. It's one of the most limited languages in the world. In fact, it is probably the most limiting language in the world Um, because we just don't have enough words to uh, express different kinds of emotions, which other languages have, Um, you know, like Urdu for example, oh my God, you can't, you can't even come close to it. right? Um, so, so I definitely think that by not being able to read different languages, we are also limiting perception, how we can perceive the world. There's so many other ways. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. And my only hope is that for, you know, urban elite people like me is that there's a lot of hope in translations and I'm trying to read more translations and, um, mm. that at least gives you, I mean, obviously not the whole package, but it, it allows you to sit in the world for a little bit.
0: Right. Like, I I get what you mean. Like, something along the lines of, I was recently reading a collection of short stories by Manto, and I was also reading this collection of poems by Gulzar, and both of them were translated from Urdu into English, and Mm -hmm. it was very interesting to read the translator's note attached to both of them because both of them exactly spoke about this, that it's extremely difficult to capture the emotion of Urdu into a limited language as English, but something that you mentioned, perception, and that's something that leads me to what I really wanted to ask you about was that, so originally as we spoke about your different lists, growth in different cultures, right, you spent about 10 years in the US, 10 years here, and so I just wanted to know, uh, well, could you just tell me a couple of books that really hit hard, like, you know, the ones which stayed with you throughout your, or still stay with you? And have shaped your journey as a writer? That's a, that's a hard
1: question because I don't know if there's any... So first of all, let me tell you that I grew up reading. You know, my first things that were really impactful when I was reading was for Reader's Digest. And I think this was there in a lot of middle-class uh, middle India's households. It was just, it was always right. there. And that was really what, what me, got me um, started on reading really r- religiously in a way. It was Reader's Digest. And then reading things like Jeffrey Archer and Sidney Sheldon. So I didn't really start with like, let's go, you know, literary fiction. I really read a lot of these mainstream things that were kept in a lot of middle-class Indian households, whether or not people read them or not. They were just there. Somebody, some uncle, some father, some mother was reading them. And that's what I picked up. Um, And then I remember, you know, one of the first books that really made an impact on me was actually a non-fiction book by Pratima Bedi. And it was called Time Pass. And it was her memoir. Okay, and so Pratima Bedi is, uh, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, she was a famous dancer. She founded Nithyogram in, in Bangalore. But she lived life very atypically, from, coming from a very conservative family in, uh, I think she grew up in Calcutta, if I'm not mistaken, and had Marwadi roots. God, I hope I'm right. But but she she was, you know, she she was talking about, you know, how she would get out of the house in the middle of the night to go on uh, to go and meet her boyfriend. And um, she, you know, she had this honest, raw, emotional vulnerability. And, you know, reading this, I think it was the, at the turn of, like, maybe this must have been 2000 when I read it, or 99. 99 or two, 2000. Um, you know, reading it back then and seeing this woman articulate herself so well and so powerfully and kind of challenging all these kind of gender roles and how, you know, a woman is supposed to be. Uh, even though she came from a pretty privileged background, uh, was really, really uh, fascinating for me. Because, um, you know, this, this is, you know, and I grew up in a very, um, when I was in Bangalore in the 90s, from a very like, you know, proper, like, um, like it was a very, it was an Aurobindo school. It was a Hindu school. Yeah, it was right. a very, um very authoritative very you know I had a lot of issues I have a lot of issues with the Indian education system I keep going on a rant on that on the side but so I mean you know when you when you come from that and you that's what you're experiencing uh, at that time and to read a book like that I was like wow I want to be her and I want to be have that kind of bravery right. so that was something uh, that I really took to heart as a writer mm-hmm. so not maybe in terms of the technicalities of writing, but how I wanted to be as a writer, how I wanted to present, how I wanted to connect to people. That's probably the one book that really made a huge mark on
0: me. Right. Like It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's, um, it's more often than not, everyone I know, like not only writers, it's just anyone who loves to read and somehow has had this one book that's, or a couple of books that have impacted them. And obviously you have different books that impact you at different points in your life. Yeah. But more often than not, the book that impacts you the most is one that surrounds bravery. That you know just kind of pushes you beyond what your boundaries are. Yeah. And it's it's just a very interesting thing that I've noticed that somehow all of us as human beings just need that push to be braver in yeah. life and just to push follow our dreams and get where we are. Yeah. So uh again there's something uh, i wanted to ask you it's uh, i know i know how would you respond to it or something i just i think i read it on your again in one of your pieces when you i don't know if it's a biographical piece or whether it's something that you just wrote down about this girl who got married when she was in her 20s when she was studying i don't remember. yeah
1: that's a true story right. that's a nice right. okay.
0: yeah, yeah yeah okay perfect so uh, writing about something as uh, sensitive as this was it a difficult experience was it um, i don't know what, what was how did you end up doing it
1: yeah so a few things like if you asked me um six or seven years i mean that piece also i wrote i think i wrote three years ago two or three years ago definitely um but if you know from that point when i had actually wrote it if you had asked me five even five years ago if i would write something like that i would said, no are you crazy i would never mm-hmm. write that so uh, and two things right one is um a lot of people have a huge discomfort uh, writing about their real, what really happened. So mm-hmm. either it comes off as very like lush, romanticized angst, right? Mm-hmm. Angst right. or victimization, or it comes from um, or you fictionalize it, and you know, and you have to be really careful because a lot of writers who are starting out their first novel ultimately you know, the attempt at it becomes a little bit biographical and you really have to figure out as a writer what you're trying to do with that. Just because it happened to you, how you know are you still trying to connect with the world with it? You can't just put out your stuff there without, a, without a, you know, an understanding of what you're trying to do with it as a writer, as a communicator, if you right. are writing something like that. So when I wrote that piece for The Lady's Finger, um, I, I had evolved a lot. I had realized that so many of my decisions and choices in my life were pre-programmed from socialization, from gender, Mm. from homesickness, from uh, cultural disassociation. A lot of these oppressive things we are just born into without you know, without us even realizing it. By the time you realize it, you're probably in your thirties, if you're lucky. But, you know, but, but you're born into so many of uh, these random expectations and societal norms, which really are so fear-based and don't make any logical sense in the real world, which is why books really allow us to connect and say, oh my God, I, I can feel free for a second, or I can you know, implement this and I, I get this push to, to really see my full potential. And, you know, the sadness is that we are really never, uh, we're not taught to lead in this country. We're not taught to embrace our uniqueness. We're not taught to mm-hmm. have autonomy. And right. uh, I think when you can tell your own story, not from a place of, uh, look at me, how look how sad my life is, because that's, I think, a mistake a lot of writers make. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a point of empowerment, from a point of perspective, and from a point of trying to connect it to the larger world. So when I wrote that piece, I was 33 years old and it was about 11 years since that incident happened, since my first marriage. And so then, um, you know, that amount of time had really established who I was, how open I am about my life and how I Mm -hmm. see it. That's, you know, a continuous process. And And I think once you embrace a certain amount of freedom, you just get freer and freer and freer. Because. Everything else is just fear-based. It's about, oh, you know, people will look at you this way. People. I mean, even in your question, you were very hesitant to ask me why, because society has told you that it's a, it's a very dicey question to ask. It comes from right. fear. Right. Yeah, right?
0: You're and absolutely so, right. I mean, and it's true. I like
1: most people will probably react weirdly to it. I, I'm, I'm definitely. I mean, I definitely understand where that comes from. But I'm saying it's a very, it's a learned thing because we're all very fear-based individuals and so the more you let go of that you realize it it really doesn't matter a and two it actually creates a lot more change because that was one of my most powerful essays not because um you know that it didn't take me a long time to write when it the time was right it came out but i got over hundreds of responses in my inbox from women who just resonated with this in so many different ways and that was really that was really
0: amazing to see coming back to taboos and your the book that came out last year, The Body, something that stood out for me in the book was how unstructured, chaotic, yet normalized it was. That is how, you know, it just felt real in the sense that, you know, people don't often have those exact thoughts how they're structured in books. It's just chaotic, unorganized. That's how people function and do, go about doing their things or how they I know interact with people or how there's this manipulation. So... Something that came, like I wanted to know was what was the process that went behind the body myth? Like, how did the book come to you? Was there a, I don't know, did something happen that made you get the idea or did it just come to you? How did you, I'm sorry, how did you develop these characters as said, It was,
1: it was actually a, th- um, it was my third attempt at writing a novel actually. The first one really didn't end up going anywhere. The second one, I thought I had a better idea, but it, I lost, interest in it which is always a bad okay. sign because <laughs> you interest in your own work it's really <laughs> a really bad sign so then so so then I took this break and then one day in like late 2016 this idea about um, this woman f- uh, possibly faking an illness came to me you know so this character Sara really came to me who was um, you know kind of falling in line with that but also at the mm-hmm. same time supporting it in some way Maybe. and so the once this idea kind of struck, the novel really came to me really quickly. It's really weird. Now, so some people say, How long will it take you to take this novel? It depends how you look at it. Um, one answer is 10 years because I was writing a lot of other things before I got to this and it just came out. The other answer for this is uh, four months to write the first draft and then two years of editing almost.
0: The second last question that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, so the body myth also talks about. Uh, LGBTQ relationships, right? You have, and it did talk them talk about them in a much much more nuanced manner than, say, a book would do it, like about ten years, twenty years ago. Something that crossed my mind was about: Do you think uh, the taboo in India surrounding not just LGBTQ rights, or but oppression, or, uh, let's say any of our social issues, rather, rather is a problem of language? I think that is a goes to the crux of why we are progressing quite slowly on that front in terms of normalizing these issues
1: that's a really good question actually um i think partly you have to you, we have to remember that uh you know like you were saying that there, there might not be a word for depression and i mean not in the sense not in the sense uh of the way when we say it like uh, this person i have depression or i have chronic depression um, I don't think there's an exact translation in Hindi I think there are probably different words that would um, you know yeah. that are come from a different time from a different association of what depression means right, right. So when we use it in this uh, in this clinical English way it gets co-opted even in Hindi because I've heard Hindi speakers also say depression you know right. or uh, or they say uh, you know uh, anxiety also same hmm. and uh, you know gay being gay hmm. people are saying that as they're speaking Hindi Right. So I feel like uh, when you're using those words, a lot of probably very native speakers who don't access English at all um, feel like these words are very jarring and yes. also come from uh, uh, from people that they don't understand or, you know, that are these elite weird people or whatever. Like these are naya, naya chiefs somehow, hmm. some new generation of uh, things. Right. And so what is your first response when you see something that's completely new? You, it is fear. And, and I think the easiest thing is when your fear is to attack, which is just makes it easier to, for a lot of you know politicians and a lot of people in, in um, positions of power to uh, completely maximize that fear by saying, this is bad. And then what happens is the people's personal insecurities about their own articulation or, or maybe I don't know English uh, well enough. Mm-hmm. or I don't understand these themes well enough because nobody's explained it to them properly. Um, it's just easier to say, yeah, I attack it because I'm insecure, I'm attacking. So that's actually a really splendid point. And yes, I think it does have a, a, a part to play because I feel like if someone sat down and, you know, from another generation, even, you know, uh, maybe um, my parents or my, even my grandparents generation, if you sat down and you spoke in their native language, mm-hmm. what this is in a really you know, soft and nuanced way as best as possible, I feel like they would not, uh, a lot more people would be uh, more open to it and find a relation to it in their life. Because it's not like these things are not happening. Like, oh, maybe that was that when something I knew this person or maybe this was that. And then suddenly you made them a part of the conversation instead of making them, you know. And I think that's missing in so much rhetoric. You're not making people a part of the conversation. You're trying to be pedantic. You know this is also a problem with social justice warriors. you're being very pedantic. you're just going and saying blah, blah blah, this is what you have to say. this is how you have to say it. and you have right. to say it at this this in this 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 way. otherwise you're bad or you're canceled or you're ignorant or whatever right. you know so that's hugely problematic as well.
0: unfortunately, we just I'll have to wrap this up right now, but I have one last question for you. It's been like a yeah. year since the body myth came out, and yeah. uh, what what other works are on the horizon? What can we expect from you over the next year, couple of years?
1: Yeah, um, actually, I am working on a project right now, so I can't uh, officially say anything because nothing's really happened. But my, my my the next project that I'm working on is actually going to be hopefully nonfiction, um, and it's going to uh, look at the idea of um, love, but not in the idea, and uh, not in the standard definition. And uh, look at the idea of resistance and what it means to be uh, to be a resistor, to be a citizen, uh, to be someone who can, um, you know, be, uh, to be capable of much more extraordinary compassion and uh, creative change than you thought possible. Right. So that's, that's a,
0: right. I know that's, it's a way
1: to read That's what I'm going to do.
0: No, I mean. no that, that actually sounds really interesting. And that's something I think it will make for a very interesting read. So I'm really looking forward to it. Thank, um, you, thank you. And, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and like working on me with me for for the debut episode. You have no idea how much this means to me. Uh, this was it was really it was great. great having you on.
1: It was a wonderful conversation, such a refreshing conversation. I really hope you do yeah. more of these. I'm really looking forward to following more of your interviews
0: and podcasts. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope all of you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, and if you want more updates from us, please like and comment and subscribe to our channel and our podcast and don't forget to check out our website com and check us out on instagram at the rate kitabikarvan. the links are in the description we'll be back with more such episodes and more such interesting authors for you